So we enter now into the part of the Mass, which is the passing of the peace of Christ. And if you'd like to go ahead and turn to that page in the booklets that are printed out for you, it'll be on page 27. 27. Now, to understand how the passing of the peace begins, we have to grasp the transition that's just been made. Okay? Last week we went through the words of institution, talked about the understanding of the word remembrance when Christ uses it. We have the offering of ourselves. We offer up to Thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and bodies. And then we pray a prayer for deliverance. Just before the passing of the peace, we pray a prayer for deliverance from all evils. All evils in our past, all evils in our present, and all evils that will to come. We've asked the Lord to deliver us from these things. Having received the deliverance that God so longs to give us, then and only then can we receive the peace of God. And I want to give you an extreme picture to, to show you what we're talking about here. Many times over in the Gospels, Many times over in the Gospels, you see Jesus encounter someone possessed by Satan, by the demonic. And that person's life is in absolute chaos. And then Christ comes and delivers that person from the oppression or possession of the enemy. And what do we see happen in the person? They blossom to life all of a sudden. They're out of their captivity. What comes into their life instead of chaos? Peace. This is why in the Mass we have prayers for deliverance that lead right into the ministry of the peace of God coming into our lives. Because it doesn't have to be about oppression or depression. It has to be about everything in our lives that is, a, it is still a result of the fall of mankind that produces chaos that we ask for deliverance from all of these things. Having been delivered, the peace of God comes into our lives. He brings Himself and His order and His peace in exchange for these things. This is why the priest, after the prayer for deliverance, he immediately takes a piece of the host, the body of Christ, and he puts it into the chalice, but he says while he does this, and you see it at the top of 27, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And your response is what? And then he puts the piece in the chalice so that the body and blood are mixed together there. Immediately after the priest says the peace, then we go right into what is known as the Agnus Dei. The Agnus Dei. Let's have a read at the Agnus Dei. Somebody read that for me nice and loud. Actually, let's all read it together. O Lamb of God, 
that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, grant us thy priest. Okay. Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, grant us, grant us your peace. Let's have a look at where in Holy Scripture we see the Agnus Day, because it comes right out of Holy Scripture. In the Gospel of John in chapter 1, let me set the scene for you. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he is baptizing with the baptism of repentance. He is the one who had been given to prepare the way of the peace of God to come through Jesus Christ to the world. So he's doing this ministry out there. And he sees Jesus coming to him for the first time out there. And it says in John 1.29, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You ever notice how in the Gospel, it's Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world? Not plural. In our Mass, it's plural, isn't it? By the way, both are acceptable. But I want you to understand what the Lamb of God came to take away. Because He didn't just come to take away the actions of sins. You see? The things we do that are in disobedience and out of the order of God. Certainly He did, but that's not all He came to take away. He came to take away the sin of the world. The sin nature of the world that was a result of the fall of mankind that we inherited from Adam in the fall. Think about this. In other words, Jesus didn't come to put a band-aid on the wound. He came to heal it completely. And so we cry out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that point, (coughs) we're singing that three times. We'll say it again later. We also see the Lamb of God worshipped in Revelation in chapter 5 and the worship of all time, the timeless worship of heaven and earth. Here's what John saw. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. This is the great sense. When we sing the Agnus Dei, 
that we should have going on. This is what we attend to, this worship. Behold the Lamb of God who came to exchange my sin nature so that I might participate in His divine one and be an expression of that nature. Yes? The 24, does that represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles? It represents the complete... Think of it this way. Instead of being as necessarily specific, the completion of all things in Christ. Make sense? Old covenant passed to the new covenant. The new covenant was the one that was the final established covenant, right? It is the completion of all things through there but to here. You see what I'm saying? So that's, yeah, that is that. Our hearts should be filled with worship to the one who made our eternal life possible by being the sacrifice and the keeper of the covenant. We should cry out for peace that our Lord is set to give those who remain in Him. And now, having done the Agnus Day, the priest prays a prayer for peace. Let's look at that. The celebrant then prays, O Lord Jesus Christ, who said to thine apostles, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Regard not our sins, but the faith of thy church, and grant to it that peace and unity which is according to thy will, who livest and reignest with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. That one short three-sentence prayer or so is such a mouthful of something that is being both expressed to us and prayed over us about the ministry of the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're praying basically two things. You can divide that prayer up into two things. The prayer calls to our mind the very intention of God expressed through the words of Jesus Christ to His apostles in John chapter 14, where Jesus tells them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. And then we pray for God to regard not our sins but the faith of thy church. Do not be fuzzy in your mind about what's being prayed here. Because this is by no means, when we say we pray for God to regard not our sins, we are not asking Jesus to ignore our sins. We are not asking Jesus to overlook our sins. God cannot, will not do this, because He intends to redeem us out of our sins. He sees all, even those sins in the most secret places that we spoke of this morning in Mass. But He loves us too much to stay in there, not to bring them up to the surface. You see, this prayer, when the priest says on our behalf, Regard not our sins, but the faith of thy church, it is actually the very prayer for Christ to be the advocate that He already is. I want to remind you of that advocacy of Jesus Christ. We talked about it about two or three weeks ago in this class. St. Gregory of Nazianzus taught us we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, not indeed someone who prostrates Himself before the Father on our behalf. Such an idea is slavish and unworthy of the Spirit. But by what He suffered as man, He as the Word and Counselor persuades the Father to be patient 
with us. Remember we talked about that. And then we talked about Moses. We brought Moses from, I believe it's Exodus 32, into the scene where they'd been building the golden calf while he's up 40 days receiving the law of God. And the anger of God, righteous anger and indignation of God, burned against his people. And so what did Moses do? He, the Scriptures say, stands in the gap. Stands in the gap between God and between His people. And he says, Lord, remember Your covenant, God, and be glorified by being patient with Your people, for You would not be glorified by their death. It's, Moses is the picture of what Christ would fulfill. Our advocate who stands between God and us. Lord, Lord, let's be patient by the covenant we've made. You see, that's the prayer. So when the priest prays this, it's a very mosaic prayer, isn't it? The priest is asking God, remember not our sins, cast them as far as the east is from the west for those who bring them to you. But instead, remember the faith of thy church. In other words, remember your covenant. The faith of the church is the covenant. The faith of the church is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Remember that. That's being prayed for us through the mouth of the priest. But don't think this is not the very prayer of your advocate, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. That your sins be put away and the covenant God has established through Christ, be remembered. And so that's what we pray there. Then we pray the third part of that prayer. Grant to it, the church, grant to it that peace and unity which is according to thy will. Lord, we want the peace you offer, but also grant us the unity that you offer. What unity are we really praying for here? One mind and one accord. One mind and one accord amongst the body, right? That's certainly part of the unity. But there's another part. Our unity, the church's unity. Oneness with God. It's actually the prayer to fulfill the very prayer that Jesus said in John in chapter 17. We remember this. Where Jesus prayed. I do not pray for these alone. That's the disciples that were with Him. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. I'm praying for the whole church. The church now and the church throughout all of the future. That they may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You. That tells us right there the unity Christ is praying. He's praying that the church be engrafted into the unity of the Trinity. That we share the unity with God that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share together. And he continues in this prayer. That that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which... uh, This one is the one that gets me. And the glory which you gave me... I have given them. That is an amazing statement. Jesus Christ 
is asking God to share the same glory He has with His church. That they may be one as we are one, He continues. I in them and you in me. That they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them in the same way that you have loved me. Not only are we invited into the union that that is shared by the Holy Trinity. We are extended to receive the love of God that is passed between Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Church. All one. When we pray for unity in that passing of the peace, when you hear the priest pray, grant that peace and unity, gang, there can be no peace without unity with God. We're asking for everything that our Lord Jesus Christ both came for and interceded for us in John and chapter 17. It is the will of God and forever will be the will of God to offer you these things. How many times when we're struggling in our sinfulness... And it is indeed right that we struggle in our sinfulness with the help of God. We get so focused on our unworthiness because of our sin, and truly we're unworthy for anything. But we get so focused on the unworthiness that we find some deception there that takes us away from the truth. That despite all of that, God wills toward us. God desires union with you. He desires union with me. Despite all those things, and quite frankly, in order to heal them. That is the nature of our God. For goodness sake, didn't Jesus say, I came for the sick? So what's wrong with saying I'm sick? What's wrong with it? Lifting it up to Him and letting Him restore peace and bring you into unity through the healing. Now, having prayed this prayer, now the priest turns to the deacon and begins the passing of the peace by saying, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And it's very important, now that you have your cue to pass the peace one to another, It's very important that you get a picture of the flow of what is going on here because there is an order to the passing of the peace that shows how peace comes to us and through us. First of all, we have to consider the question, from whom, easy question, from whom does peace begin? God. When the priest prays for this peace, for us, for all of us, including himself, having become the receiver of that peace, he shares it. The peace begins at the altar, the place where God is among us. And it begins to flow from the altar to all of us. More importantly, through all of us. You remember that picture we looked at? It's like the second or third class in this series. In Revelation, about the living water that flowed from the throne, and everywhere the living water flowed as it flowed down, sprung everything to life. 
I want you to picture the passing of the peace the same way. It begins at the throne of God. The priest begins it and everyone continues it. One to another as the peace of God flows and as the peace of God is ministered through each one of us. See, this is why, and you've heard me say this before, this is why that the passing of the peace of God is not a good morning. It's not a how are you doing. It's not a hope you're doing well. Although those things are wonderful. They're part of our fellowship. That's not what this time is. This time is where the priesthood of all believers is the most active ministering one to another. When you turn to the person next to you, you proclaim those words. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And you trust God that in the Mass where we are all joined with Him and with one another in heaven and earth, that by those very words and that kiss of peace or embrace of peace, that person is going to experience the peace of God in the way God needs them to. Because He knows where every living stone is when they come through those doors and join with one another. Save your conversational how you doings for after Mass. Keep them going. I want us to know how we're all doing. I want us to share our lives together. But that time during the passing of the peace is the time to be the priesthood of all believers and trust God despite all of your weaknesses and mine to issue forth His peace into our lives in a way perhaps we haven't experienced before. Okay? Consider that as we pass the peace. Having finished the passing of the peace, for that exchange does end that section, turn with me now to page, bottom of page, well no, it's on bottom of page 27. It's the prayer of humble access. The prayer of humble access. We have reached the point, finding deliverance, encountering the peace of God now, where we are infinitely close to the pinnacle of the mountain, and that's receiving Eucharist in absolute communion with God. And so now we move to this prayer of humble access. Before we read it, I want to go through the points of it. I want you to understand what we're praying. And then we'll go back and look and see if we can catch it. The first thing we pray is that we come to this table in dire need of your mercy, Lord. For no good act that we could ever do, no good act we could ever do, makes us worthy to approach Him at the table. Secondly, we make the statement, We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And this part of the prayer comes from Matthew 15, where Jesus encounters the Gentile woman who comes asking Him, Lord, release my daughter from demon possession. Gentile woman now. And the disciples call upon Jesus to put her away. She's making a lot of noise, Lord. Just tell her, go away. 
And yet she cried out all the more. And the Scripture reads, Then she came and worshipped Him, saying, Lord, help me. But He answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This woman had two things. She had the humility of understanding that even in that culture of that day, as a Gentile among Jews, she knew her position. She knew it well. She knew how she was considered. And yet, she still approached Christ for healing. She still approached Christ for healing. And in that moment, Christ who brought it out of her. Don't think Jesus doesn't have a way of bringing out of us faith. The woman had approached Jesus unworthy, knowing, approaching Christ as unworthy. And Jesus drew out of her even greater faith and met her where she was. Okay? And this is where this prayer in the prayer of humble access comes from, not worthy to eat even the crumbs. We are posturing ourselves with the very heart God loves to heal. Lord, we're not worthy to eat even the crumbs. And yet you've come. And we're drawing near to you. That's what's happening at that part of the prayer. Then we pray and proclaim that it is the nature of God to give this mercy. And mercy is that which we so need. We cry out for Him to feed us His body and blood that we may be whole and our sins washed away. And finally, we ask again for unity with Him that we may dwell in Him and He in us. The only reason that I want to go ahead and read this prayer to you is I want you having heard little backstory on some of those things. These things should be welling up in our mind. When we pray, we pray with our whole being. So listen to the words of our prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, But Thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of Thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink His blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by His body, and our souls washed through His most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us. There's that prayer for unity. And immediately following this, the priest begins his own prayer of preparation to receive Eucharist. I'm not going to read this one to you, but I'm going to give you the two points of prayer that the priest makes. The first thing he prays is, Christ, who by the will of the Father has given life to the world, deliver me from all my sin 
and from all evil. And help me to never be separated from you. He's praying for his own deliverance. I'm about to take your body and blood. Lord, deliver me. And I shared this with you before when we, when we shared a little bit about how our experience is growing in the Mass from the things that we're learning. That this is a point that gets me almost every Mass. I know myself. I'm very aware and always becoming more aware of the ways that I am not like our Lord. And so when I am there at the altar and about to consume, be one with Christ by taking the body and blood, when I pray deliver me, I know what's in me. And I'm asking for deliverance again and again. The second part of the prayer that the priest makes as preparation is he prays, as I partake of your body and blood, let it not be to my judgment, my condemnation. Rather, let it be for your purpose. Let it be to my healing, both in my body and in my soul. Now, I want to address something here. Now that we are doing the Mass in the order that we're doing it, which is according to the Missal, and the, litur- the, litur- the liturgy of St. Tikhon as, as it should be done in an order standpoint. You guys have noticed you've got a lot more silence on your hands, haven't you? There's a time, a couple times, and this is the longest time, there are a few times in the Mass where there is silence. I want to talk about that for a minute. Because silence has been, it's become foreign to us. Silence has become so foreign to our existence that we darn near get uncomfortable in it. And it's okay to acknowledge that. But what it should be telling us is not that silence is bad. is that we need to adjust ourselves. Probably to a life of a bit more of it. We are bombarded with information screaming out to us, boy, did it ramp up with the development of the television. Then the internet and the radio and music, all of which in and of themselves are not things of evil, depending on what you're watching or listening to, but all of which in and of themselves are not things of evil. But if they consume our time to where when we have Three moments of silence in Mass, we get uncomfortable. That really ought to be showing us something. Because part of the invaluable experience with God in our lives is when we're quiet. Be still and know that I am God. We don't attend to that as much. First, my encouragement is attend to it more in your lives. Find some times to steal away. But in the Mass, there's a great many things that can be accomplished in three minutes of silence when you're about to be joined to Christ Himself. To me, when I would sit in that silence before I was doing the Mass, to me it was a time, this is a a good last stage of just my being with God. Lord, I'm coming to your table. If there's anything left that I need to open up to you about, let's let's have it now. And pray. And listen. 
Lord, if there's anything that You'd offer me in the silence that You would show me about myself or how I would evolve to become more like You, I'm listening. And then be quiet. That silent time doesn't need to be dead space in your life. We're in the Mass. Heaven and earth are joined together. Be with God in the silence. You might be surprised how He reveals Himself to you. Yes. You ever notice how we can't get beyond a moment of silence yeah. in, in the public? Yeah. They, we we just we we can't stand to give a moment of silence any more than a moment of silence. That's right. Why not five minutes? That's exactly right. Exactly right. So we have that opportunity, but I wanted to mention that because I know you've got more time of silence right there the way things are being done right now. So use it with God. Enjoy the presence of God with you. Okay? Alright. Having prepared, now He takes the host and the chalice and the priest turns to us, proclaiming once again, following up on the Agnus Day and what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we respond with another gesture of humility. Lord, I am not worthy that Thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. We say it thrice. And that comes from Matthew in chapter 8, when the centurion has the servant who is paralyzed and dreadfully tormented, and he comes to Jesus letting him know, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, He marveled and said to those who followed assuredly, in one of the greatest statements you'll find in the New Testament about someone, Assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And His servant was healed. What's happening? Just a moment ago, we prayed extending the expression of our unworthiness to God, right? Like the woman, the Gentile woman. And now, like the centurion, we are modeling the greatest faith in Israel. Lord, we pray. I am not worthy that Thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. What an expression of faith that that is that we acknowledge together. Having expressed this, the people, just like the priest did, the people now do their prayer of preparation before receiving Eucharist. And you will see that it is pretty much the same meaning that the priest did, just in different words. We confess that He's the Christ who came into the world to save us. We say we believe that the bread and wine are indeed Christ's body and blood. It's an expression of faith. We ask for mercy once again, and the forgiveness of our sins that we've committed both voluntarily, the ones we knew we were doing, and also sins that we didn't mean to do. Cover us, Lord. 
and make us worthy right now. Make us worthy to receive life from this Eucharist rather than condemnation. For it's only through the worth of Christ within us that this can be accomplished. So next week, as we come back, we will look at Eucharist itself, the taking of Holy Eucharist. In the following week, the last week, we will look at having climbed the mountain, been with God, how the Mass prepares us to go out into the life and mission of the church. Let's stand.